coming up on In Session. I've been in organizations across industries, across sectors, and most of them don't have a high enough level of psychological safety to really be excellent at what they do. Due to COVID-19 workplace disruptions, this episode was recorded from varied remote locations. In light of recent events, today's episode about psychological safety in the workplace is especially relevant. We'll explore what psychological safety is, how to know if you have it, and what leaders can do to create it. Research shows that having psychological safety in the workplace is one of the best predictors of organizational success, and leaders play a critical role in creating it. Our guest today is Amy Edmondson, researcher and author of The Fearless Organization. Amy describes a fearless organization as one in which everyone, at every level, is encouraged to share ideas and question current workplace practices. Her research shows that even hierarchical and tradition-bound institutions, like the judiciary, can promote and support psychological safety. For the past two decades, Amy has studied what makes an organization fearless and why being fearless matters. As the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, she teaches and writes about leadership teams and organizational learning. She has written three books, and her insights have been published in journals like the Harvard Business Review, California Management Review, Administrative Science Quarterly, and the Academy of Management Journal. Today we'll talk about her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Our host for today's episode is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Lori, take it away. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Lori, thanks for having me. Amy, I'd like to start with a basic definition of psychological safety. And if you could give us a sense of what that looks like in a work context. Sure. I mean, I define psychological safety as the belief that I can bring my full self to work. And maybe that's overly simplistic because what I'm really talking about is a confidence that I can be direct and candid and people won't hold it against me. What that looks like in a workplace is um, generally you'll see people just interacting with energy. You'll see um, you'll see humor. You know, you'll you'll see just a genuine leaning in, a, a, a an engagement, a liking. Um, what I'm talking about is taking interpersonal risks, right? Not undue organizational risks, but interpersonal risks. And an interpersonal risk is anything that might lead to others not thinking well of you. So for example, I'm not quite sure what to do here. Can I ask for help? Well, I don't know. You might think I'm incompetent if I do, so I won't, right? That's, that's a lack of psychological safety. Whereas if I'm willing to say, I don't know what's going on, who can help? Then that's the presence of psychological safety. Talk through then why psychological safety is so important to an organization's success. You know, today we live in what's called the knowledge era. I mean, we, we are so long past the world of Henry Ford, where the, the tasks that employees were meant to do 
or explicitly defined, you know, broken down into chunks, largely individually accomplished, and completely objectively measurable. It, everything I just said is not true today. Right? Most employees in your organization, in my organization, have to work together on challenging tasks and problems that have some knowledge base, but also have some need for ingenuity and problem solving. And so we live in a world where problem solving and teamwork are more important than ever. And you simply can't engage in high quality problem solving and effective teamwork without a sense of psychological safety. So the short answer to the reason why this is more important now than ever is that the work demands it. In order to do high quality work in the knowledge era, we need to feel psychologically safe. So if we have that need, all of us, it sounds like, have that need at work, what role do leaders play in, in helping foster this type of environment? So what if I define leadership as, as an activity, right? as, as, um, as a function rather than a role? And, when I, and, and that function is doing and saying things that positively influence others. But that's leadership. So the answer to your question of what can leaders do, which is a really good question, um, should not be limited to those informal leadership roles. With that said, those informal leadership roles have an outsized impact on, a, on how the rest of us think and feel and, and show up. So I want people to listen to some of these ideas with the sense that I could do that too, because I think it's true. So what can leaders do? Well, I think the most important leadership action is to get everybody on the same page. And, you know, if, if we all jointly recognize that the work requires problem solving and uncertainty and failures will happen and mistakes will happen, that creates a very real rationale for why my voice might be needed. So I might, I might need to back up for a second because the, you know, I, I was talking about how important psychological safety is, but, but I want to say something unfortunate, which is it's not the norm. <laughs> and I've been in organizations across industries, across sectors, and most of them don't have a high enough level of psychological safety to really be excellent at what they do. And so that in some ways, and, and so part of the reason that's true is because the default is for us not to take interpersonal risks, right? I mean, there's a saying, nobody ever got fired for silence. Right. right. So, and, and, you know, if I don't speak up in a particular instant, I am not at risk as an employee. By the way, it'd be nice to change that. So why should I, right? And the, the reasons I should is that I care. I care about my colleagues. I care about the work. I care about the mission. Um, but that's not enough. I also need to know that you know that mistakes and problems and uncertainty are part of the game, which means that any one of us literally might see something or have an idea that makes a difference. So I think the, the most important thing leaders can do is just make sure we're all on the same page in terms of having a rationale for why voice is needed, because otherwise we're just going to hold back. 
So that's just, I call that framing the work. You know, for example, in a, a hospital I studied, the chief operating officer would routinely say things like, healthcare, by its nature, is a complex error-prone system. Now, why did she do that? She did that because it let people know that their voice, you know, if they see something, say it immediately because we can catch and correct and make sure patients don't get harmed. Um, whereas the default before she got there was, you know, when something goes wrong, someone's going to get blamed. So you don't want to be anywhere near it. So you have to shift that frame. The second thing is ask questions. Ask people, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? What ideas do you have? Because most of us would feel very awkward not responding to a legitimate question, mm-hmm. right? A genuine question. And then the third thing that leaders can do is to respond productively when people do speak up. And productively doesn't mean I have to love everything you said or applaud uh, at everything you said, but it does mean I have to acknowledge acknowledge you. You know, thank you for that clear line of sight. That's an interesting idea. I'm glad you raised it. And 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 so a productive the essence of a productive response is it's appreciative. You know, not in a throw you a party, but in a just a simple human sense, it's appreciative. And secondarily, it's forward looking, meaning my first instinct. I have to train myself so that my first instinct isn't how the heck did that happen? And instead, it's how can I help? Or what ideas do you have? Right? It's forward looking. We're going to solve it first. Maybe later we should look back on how did that, how did that happen? But the first instinct has to be one that, in a sense, in a very, very small sense, rewards voice. So I want to circle back to something you said earlier that the norm is not for most organizations to be psychologically safe places. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about why it's typically hard for most people in most organizations to not speak up. Sure. And, and it's in many ways, it's very simple. It's, it's like our school system, our, you know, our families, our social norms are still predicated on the industrial era. Certainly before middle school, the kids learn that the you know, the, the good students are the ones who have the right answers, you know, so you're not rewarded for, for taking risks. You're not rewarded for making mistakes. You know, you're not rewarded, I think, fundamentally for what, what, um, Carol Dweck might call a growth mindset where you take on harder challenges because that exercises the learning muscles. So, um, you know, instead, and, and, so in many ways, the syndrome I'm talking about now is even more problematic for high achievers because high achievers are the ones who did really well in high school and then they got into good universities and then they did well there and then they went to law school or wherever they went um, and now they work for you. And, and, and so, you know, these people, and I have to put myself in that category, are, can be, you know, risk averse, interpersonally risk averse mm-hmm. because they inappropriately think the consequences of their making mistakes or getting the wrong answer at some point would be dire when in fact in a complex interdependent unfamiliar world we're all going to have breakdowns and mess ups and 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 failures and and you know if we don't we're probably not doing our jobs so so, so I mean, I think there's this just societal 
um, set of, of beliefs and mental models that, that get in the way of accepting our imperfection. And, and when I say it's the norm, you know, in most organizations that there isn't psychological safety, I need to, I need to modify that a little bit because in every organization, what I have found, in every organization I've studied, what I have found is variability. So mm. it's never the case that let's just say, you know, the whole federal judiciary is going to be psychologically safe or not psychologically safe. It's always the case that there are pockets. You know, there's a group over here that's on fire, right? They innovate, they talk to each other, they roll up their sleeves and dig into thorny problems and they make progress. And then there's a group over here that's tiptoeing. And a lot of the, you know, the explanation for that difference is local leadership factors. It, it's the, it's the, you know, the division manager or the team leader or what have you. And again, there's such powerful psychological forces, you know, to lead us to, to self-protect. It's like my, my colleague um, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Bob Keegan, says, everybody at work has two jobs. You know, there's the job you got hired to do, you know, that you get paid to do. And then there's the job of looking good. And what I'm talking about is when you can make the job of looking good a really minor part of your day's activities, then you have more time, energy, and brain power available for your real job. Interesting. So for a leader who wants to do better on this, wants to get a sense of what the level of psychological safety is in their own organization, what, what do you recommend they do? Well, there's, there's several answers to that question, and, and, and one, which is a bit mechanical, um, is, you know, do a survey. And then you can also just um, kind of look around and, and listen. Do you hear people talking about, you know, problems and questions and mistakes, or do you only hear good news? You know, do you only hear accomplishments? If you're only hearing sort of reports of how well everything's going in my department, my group, that's probably a risk factor. Uh, so there's that kind of just get get your get the sense of whether you see people um, saying and doing things that people who are worried about what others think of them don't say and do is is another indication. And then I would say the third thing I would I, I would reply was is that assume there's room for improvement almost no matter what you know even if you've got a pretty engaged lively group it's learning oriented and um, very collaborative um, assume there's always more and to me the most useful tool if you assume there's more that people can offer if they take off the brakes um, is the tool of inquiry you know and that's just a fancy way of saying ask more questions you don't ask good questions. Don't ask yes, no questions. Don't ask leading questions. Um, but ask questions, you know, what are we missing about this project? What other options might there be? Help me understand why you see it that way. You know, the kind of question that invites others thinking in, in a very real way. There's almost an element of curiosity involved. involved. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, that's to be... Where it starts is um, is curiosity. I mean, and, and most of us don't ensure and, and bolster our curiosity 
sufficiently, right? So you've got to remind yourself, you've got to wake up in the morning and remind yourself to be curious because it's a it, strong stance. It is. Um, you know, in, in the judiciary, we're a, a, a hierarchical, uh, tradition-bound uh, institution. And so, you know, when I was reading through your book, I, I found several examples that I think are really relevant to our uh, our audience. And uh, one of them is the hospital setting that you spoke a little bit about earlier. Um, what happens when there's high versus low psychological safety? And I, I think uh, there's some parallels, like I said, to the judiciary. So can you can you expand on what you said earlier on the hospital setting and, and how psychological safety uh, impacts that environment? Absolutely. And, and I think you're right to draw a parallel because what those two, what the two domains have in common is profession. Right. And, and, you know, a profession is a body of knowledge and expertise that you go to school, you know, to become an expert in, and then you go practice your craft. And, and that's what you do in hospitals. And that's what you do in the judiciary. And that's both an enormous strength because you have all this great knowledge, but also a, um, a risk factor because you might inadvertently believe I'm supposed to know. I'm not supposed to ask. I'm not supposed to be curious. Like the law isn't a thing to be curious about. The law is a thing to, you know, uphold and apply. Um, but of course, that's wrong, right? And it's the same with, with medicine. The, the reality is, um, A, um, medicine and even the law is a moving target. There's always new knowledge, new rulings, new, um, new tests, new, new studies. Um, and, and B, and probably more importantly, Medicine is a profession that is, unlike 100 years ago, practiced in a collaborative way. I mean, there's, there are very few and, and essentially zero hospitalized patients that don't have a need for multiple um, experts weighing in on, on, on the case. And, you, you know, the average um, hospitalized patient might be seen by... Um, 60 different caregivers over the course of a stay. Um, and so, so that means that, yes, I have expertise. And yes, someone else has expertise. And maybe someone's an expert in, you know, this part of medicine and that part of medicine or this part of the law and that part of the law. And, and yet a particular case is going to be rich and complex enough that we need to understand each other and work together to make it happen. And so I think uh, what what I see routinely in the healthcare delivery setting is this tension. First of all, high stakes, right? You know, everybody, you know, people will say things like, yeah, but we can't, you know, we can't have failures here. So I don't care if you want to talk about failures, but we can't have them here. It's like, well, yeah, but here's the thing. You will have them. So I say, if you want to be error free at the end, meaning at the bedside, you need to be error aware at every step of the process. Right? It's just that's just reality. You know, reality is that small things um, will go wrong in, in routine areas, but also that you will encounter at various times during the day or week or month novel situations that neither you nor anyone else have ever been in before. And so you've got to be not only curious, but kind of humble in the face of the novelty or the complexity that you face. So you're practicing a craft. You should be proud of that craft. Um, and you got to be seriously curious and humble about the limits of that craft. 
And it sounds like up and down the hierarchy, that's important as well. It is. And, and the, you know, in the, in the hospital, the chief operating officer I referred to before, that was a study that I did at, um, at Children's Minnesota. And it, it was, you know, the, the culture, hierarchical, medicine's very hierarchical. And, and the, the culture of the organization was, you know, hierarchical, the more senior and the more expert, the more you're right and, and others should just toe the line. And yet, Time and time again, someone at the front lines, a, a nurse, a respiratory therapist might see something that got missed. And if they don't feel utterly free to speak up, that patient is at risk. So it's not a matter of them being smarter or more educated than the physician. It's a matter of data and facts being shared. And when those, you know, when those, which might make the world of difference uh, to the outcome of a case. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, another example from your book that that struck me as having a lot of parallels is the aviation industry, and especially the relationship among the co-pilot, pilot, uh, air traffic control. Can you can you highlight that for us a bit as well? Yes, in 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 a well-run cockpit, right? In in aviation, um, there's a remarkable combination of role clarity. As you know, you know what your expertise is, you know what your role is, and role flexibility, meaning, you know, when something happens, um, let's say the the famous, you know, the miracle on the Hudson when Captain Sullenberger, you know, um, lost both engines and yet managed uh, to land that plane in the river with all, you know, no, no lives lost. Um, it was an extraordinary moment because he was the more senior pilot, but at that moment that the they hit the, the geese and lost their engines, he was the co-pilot. Um, and the junior, you know, the, the, the more junior pilot was was uh, flying the plane. And first, you do the normal things first. Again, this is all in a matter of seconds. Like, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's restart the engines. Oops, they won't. And within a very short time, maybe 30 seconds, uh, probably less, um, Sullenberger says, my airplane. Because right? he recognizes, first of all, he's on the right side of the of the plane where the view is going to be better for what he kind of anticipates might be ahead and second of all he just has many more flying hours um, and a great deal of experience in cockpit resource management which is their term for sort of teamwork uh, in in the cockpit so it's not hierarchy that dominates it's it's expertise and ideas can come from anywhere and what really matters is just communication clarity and you know keeping keeping that line uh, going forward so very complex work um, where there are um, with just an enormous awareness that they have to work together they have to be dynamic but they also have to be clear and there's an element of trust as oh well. my gosh yes okay as we record this Amy as you well know we're in the midst of a global pandemic and it, it strikes me that psychological safety is even more important when people are uh, worried, um, anxious, and dispersed and not, not able to be face-to-face. -face. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your research tells you about the, the situation we find ourselves in and what leaders can do during times like these. You know, I think it's a, the situation we find ourselves in, which is, of course, unprecedented and that understates it. We've, no one has ever been in a situation like this before in, in modern times. Um, and 
on the one hand, the the very unprecedentedness of it makes it a little bit easier for people to kind of admit that they're in over their head or that they, you know, because it's permissible. Like it's every, everything that's sort of going on is quite discussable. And, and at least with colleagues and coworkers, we're in it together. I mean, we're all, for example, learning how to teach online or um, dealing with working in our teams only from a distance, which is, which is quite hard. So it's, it's not as if you would ever think, oh, it's a weakness if I can't sort of say, oh, I'm feeling a little you know, uncertain about this. Everybody gets that. But on the other hand, um, our dispersion calls for us to be even more explicit and about inquiry, about reaching out. You know, let's just say your, your manager um, Zooms you or calls you and says, I need that report by four o'clock, but doesn't stop to say, what are you what are you grappling with right now because you know she might not know that you're you're dealing with a three-year-old who's having a meltdown or that you're you know in the midst of something that is really quite challenging so i mean we've got to be the communication has to be much more more explicit and the the problem solving orientation has to be um, really nurtured. I mean, because I think there's a tendency, or there's a there's a risk that we will kind of freeze. I mean, the the this is it's so scary in a way. What's what's happening at the small and the large um, that we can easily just be, you know, be, become sort of paralyzed by it. And if we're going to be um, productive and other oriented, we need to sort of keep keep pushing it. So there's an opportunity, regardless about how psychologically safe an environment you had previously cultivated during this time, we can even flex our muscles in this area, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. It's like a practice field. I mean, it's because this is a strange, gee, I've never, you know, it's almost like a training exercise. We're all thrown into the simulation. And because it's a simulation, we can experiment with new behaviors. Well, it's the same way. It's like, this is a simulation, except it's real, but we can experiment. I think we are free to experiment with new behaviors. Speaking of new behaviors, so what are some specific things that a leader can do beyond what you've already shared um, if they want to increase the level of psychological safety? You talked about communication, you talked about uh, inquiry and curiosity, asking questions, uh, reaching out more. Is there anything else that leaders in the judiciary can do during this time or, or at any time? to increase the level of psychological safety? Well, one of the things we haven't talked about is broadly under the category of structures. Uh, and, and, and by that, I mean specific forums that are designed, you know, that have the express purpose of, of problem solving or um, reviewing a project or planning or looking forward or brainstorming, you know, so, so for example, in, in the book, you'll see the, the um, description of Pixar's brain trust which is which is not a specific group of people it's a specific process that they use periodically when they sense that there is a need to really get in there and look at the movie that's being made with immense you know a critical eye to make sure it it's 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 interesting and good and and it's a process so i call it the structure because it's it's got structured 
rules and norms. You know, when you go into the brain trust or, you know, if you as a manager want to set up a forum where we're going to do problem solving or brainstorming or postmortem of something, there's got to be some uh, rules and, 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 and processes that we'll use, like, you know, one voice at a time. And um, yes, we have a hierarchy out there, but in here, it's we're peers, uh, you know. For example, that's something that they that they do uh, at uh, at Pixar, and there's various kinds of structures like that that can just make make it easier for people to bring themselves forward because it's the design it's the design of the engagement. And now we're all we can't all come in the same room right now, but we can do similarly. We can have you know we can set up a a Zoom call. A Zoom meeting where we, which is explicitly for brainstorming about such and such, and where we explicitly go around the screen uh, to get different voices at different times. Um, so, so I, I think the use of structured sessions to increase voice is very important. So, uh, this may sound odd, but it could an organization or even part of an organization be too psychologically safe? Is there a risk that you you swing the pendulum to the other side and become too psychologically safe? I love that question. And my short answer is no. And, and But I have to give the longer answer because that sounds very unresponsive. And the, But the reason my short answer is no is because um, psychological safety is basically the absence of interpersonal fear. Um, so I think what underlies that question is not you know, well, how much is a good level of fear to have? You know, because really, you know, no amount of fear really helps our problem solving or our cognition or our collaborative spirit, right? But what's really underneath that question is, well, what happens if people just kind of relax and don't work hard? And so it's such a good question because it makes me have to be more clear than I have been, which is psychological safety is one dimension of an effective workplace. It is by no means the only dimension, right? It's just, it's, I kind of say it's necessary, but not sufficient. And the other dimension that's really important is one you already know, which is um, a commitment to excellence, which encompasses that simple phrase encompasses a lot of things like the availability of training, the clarity of, of um, of performance standards, you know the the even even norms about um, respect and so forth. Right, so you've got you've got already systems in place in most organizations that are there to motivate people to work hard. Um, and so, absent those, in fact, you'd be in big trouble because then you, with you know, high psychological safety but no commitment to excellence, you'd have what I call the comfort zone. You know where. And by the way, I can say anything I want, and I it does, I don't really have to take accountability for it. That's not good, right? But what I worry about even more is, let's say, high commitment to excellence. And I look to my right, and I look to my left, and I know a lot is expected of me, um, but no psychological safety. I call that the anxiety zone. And the book is full of examples of, you know, really smart, well-educated people in the anxiety zone and inadvertently contributing to colossal failures, whether that be at NASA or in the, you know, financial services industry a decade ago. So the um, the sweet spot is, of course, very high commitment to excellence and, you know, supports and structures to help people perform at their very best, plus high psychological safety, 
is the high performance zone. You know, that that's where that's where innovation happens. That's where good things happen. But the other part of the worry about, well, wait, too much psychological safety is that people might talk too much. And that, again, is accomplished not by making them more afraid, but by giving people feedback. Because nobody wants to be the person who others are thinking has just sucked all the air out of the room. And so it's our duty to give them feedback on on their effectiveness because we all want to be effective you know we want to be thought well of but we want i want people to be thought well of by their colleagues not because they're holding back on who they really are and what they really think but because they have shared who they are and what they really think and that's valued by their colleagues and when they overshare they get feedback so that they that they understand it better Amy, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? Just appreciation. I'd like to share my appreciation and respect for the work you do. And it just couldn't be more important in today's world that you do it. So take risks, you know, get in there, make it happen. And and thanks for listening. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you and your research is important and we're grateful to share it with our audience. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap Podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session was produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glashkova. Special thanks to Michael Siegel and Chris Murray. Thanks for listening. Stay well.